Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you, you come to us in those times when we're disillusioned and in despair and we have a lot of questions, that you meet us in those places. And I pray for all of us that we would, we would learn that when we're down, we can go to you. And I pray for the children as they go through life, as life might get difficult for them, as it does for all of us, they will learn that they, they can look to you and hold on to you and, and they can cry out their souls to a God who really cares and really hears and is able to act on their behalf. Lord, be with them. You give them instruction today in their own way. And I pray you would bless us in the sanctuary as we remain here to hear from you, not just from me, but from you by your spirit. You would instruct us, teach us, challenge us, encourage us to follow you. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. morning. Welcome to faith. The old nursery rhyme says, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men could put Humpty back together again. Humpty had a big problem, a big, big problem, didn't he? Even the king couldn't solve it. We don't think in terms of kings much, do we? We, we? The story sounds strange to us. Kings? What's a king? In the history of mankind, however, many have been ruled by kings and queens, some evil and some benevolent. This series in the Gospel of Matthew that we're currently involved in is, we're calling it the king and the kingdom. The Gospel of Matthew is about Jesus, the, the promised king who has come to usher the kingdom of God, to convince both Jews and Gentiles that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, and to strengthen believers to be the radical community of the king in their calling to make disciples of all the nations. Matthew is a Jew writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he avoids using the sacred name of God. He talks about the kingdom of the heavens, not, not, not the kingdom of God. God, Yahweh, the sacred name that Jews didn't like to talk, to, to use that name. But clearly he's talking about the same thing, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. The kingdom is a complex concept in one sense. In another sense, it's quite simple. Many speak of the kingdom as being here but not yet here. There's an already but not yet aspect to the kingdom that Jesus brought. The kingdom comes to us according to Martin Lloyd-Jones and to Led and, and, and others in, in three manifestations. There's the, the past reality, kingdom power. In Jesus' ministry, the reign of God was seen. Jesus could say to people, don't look for the kingdom here or there or later. The kingdom of God is before you. It's in your midst. It's right before you. It's in your face. Don't you see it? The kingdom of God. And yet there's a present reality during this ages as as. Colossians, Paul and Colossians say that when we come to, to, to trust Christ as king, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. Colossians chapter 1. There's a present reality as we trust the king Jesus Christ as God's people, as the covenant people of God. And yet in the New Testament, clearly there's a future aspect to the kingdom. We pray in the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
there's a fuller, complete manifestation of the powerful presence and glory of God. So that in Revelations, it can say the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. So there's a past, there's a present, and there's a, there's a future aspect to this thing called the kingdom of God. And today we want to look at a passage where we find Matthew giving us some biographical information. Very, 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 the only part of biography we really have about Matthew from his gospel is in the passage we're going to look at today, which is Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Listen to God's word from the ESV translation. <clears throat> As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, arose, he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God's word. You know, when we truly follow Christ Jesus as King, King Jesus, we are eternally transformed by his grace. He came, he's the King of grace, he came to transform us by his grace. And, and the, 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 the man, Matthew, understood that. My title is A Man Named Matthew. We look at Matthew, but as we look at Matthew, I want us to think about ourselves and the transformation that goes on where we trust the one that Matthew trusted. Matthew is, of course, the human author of this gospel, this first gospel. He, he is exhibit A, and he himself is, because Jesus changed his life. King Jesus changed his life. Now, of course, in our nation, we don't, again, we don't think about kings. Friday, we had the inauguration of Donald Trump. The, the, the pendulum has swung back to the other side. I believe historians will look back at both the Obama election and the Trump election with utter amazement. They were both unlikely candidates for their parties. They both understood that something different is happening culturally in our nation. They both spoke to the deep yearnings of their very different constituencies. Looking back on it this week, I, I am concerned and I am hopeful. First, concern, my big concern, I see the balance of power eroding away in our nation. The last king over this land was named George. Not George Washington, King George. Over 200 years ago, America does not have a king. The founders brilliantly established a wonderful balance of power. The legislative branch, the judicial branches were established to keep the executive branch from taking too much power. But where are we headed as presidents continue to issue executive orders to the gov their governmental agencies bypassing legislative branch? We, all of us, should be concerned about that. But I also have hope. Why? What you may have witnessed Friday 
if you saw it, was the peaceful transfer of power again in our country. Let us never take that for granted, people. Human beings are sinful. And the axiom is true that power corrupts. People are not prone to give up power easily. In the history of the world, what we do, what do we mostly see? We see power transferred by hereditary, 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 or by military or governmental coup, or by violent grassroots revolution. Remember America's roots? We are not the product of a peaceful transfer of power. We exist through a war, the Revolutionary War. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence, paragraph 2, included the following statement. The history of the present king of Great Britain, that's King George, not George Washington, King George, is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny, tyranny over these states. Listen, the peaceful transfer of power remains unique in history, and I think it's part of why, despite the imperfections, the United States' democratic experiment still seems to work. Kings with kingdoms were the norm in Jesus' day when he was on earth. And now in the middle of Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Matthew gives us his own personal story of how he came to really begin to follow the king seriously. And that's what we want to look at today. I want to look at three things. For Matthew's story, I want us to see our own sinfulness, that we need God's grace. I want us to see in his conversion that we are saints that are transformed by God's grace, by the Spirit of God. And, and thirdly, I want us to see in, his, in, in, in the way he shares this message that we have a calling to be spokespeople who would share the message of God's grace with others who need to hear it. Like Matthew, we are sinners. We need God's saving grace. Those who are well, verse 12, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came to call all, all who understand their need, that they are sinners. Matthew, who is this guy Matthew? Matthew the Publican. That's a, that's a, it doesn't say Republican, by the way. It's public, okay? Republican is the King James phrase for tax gatherer, tax collector. Don't get that confused. It's not, he was not a Republican or a Democrat. Okay. He, his Jewish name is Levi. We know that from the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, the parallel passages. He was a tax collector. He was a friend of Rome. He, therefore, he was despised by his Jewish, friend, uh, Jewish brethren. He, he's therefore, he's not poor or blue-collar like the other 11 apostles. He's pretty quite well off, in fact. He's an outsider in several ways to the common people. But most of all, like you and like me, Matthew's a sinner. But he was intrigued by Jesus. Who, he answered the call to follow Jesus, the Messiah, in radical discipleship. Now, we see in the passage, uh, he has some friends, and his friends are a collection of outsiders, tax collectors, and sinners. Sinners is kind of a technical term. You can put a, 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 in, in, in quotes, the air quote, the sinners. You can, you can, it's a technical term for immoral people, the prostitutes, the pimps, the thugs, sinners, and tax collectors. Last week, Craig pointed out in, in, in chapter 4, verse 17, that 
that word uh, of God, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the ministry of Jesus began with that word repent, which is turn. By God's grace, turn. The kingdom of grace is the kingdom of those who repent. It's, it requires an initial repentance and continual repentance in our lives for those who are subjects of the king. We're talking about the king and his kingdom. And there, there are four necessities for a kingdom. The first is a kingdom must have a ruler. There must be a ruler, a person with sole authority. This authority is often received from birth or from a political coup or the violent revolution. Matthew wants us to see from the beginning, first chapter, first chapter, first verse of the book, that Jesus Christ is the king that he's talking about, the messianic king. A kingdom needs two boundaries, boundaries, distinguishing markers from the other kingdoms, a river that marked up, or a mountain range, or a valley. Now, Matthew begins by talking about uh, the gospel coming to Galilee of the, of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, that, that region north of Judea and Samaria. But, but as the book goes on, and in Matthew's mind and in our minds, we need to think of this kingdom not just the kingdom of Galilee or Judea or Samaria. In fact, the book ends. He tells us and tells all of his disciples to make disciples of all the nations. <laughs> of all the nations. Because he, he's not just the king of these locations. He's king of kings and Lord of Lords, and, and, and so the boundaries of the world in one sense. The third thing a kingdom needs is rules, laws, rules. A sense of what's to be expected in terms of behavior so that there's, there's peace between the people in the kingdom. And in Matthew's gospel is structured at, with clusters of stories. There's clusters, like in chapter eight and nine, we have a cluster of the, the, the encounters that people have with Jesus. In chapter five and six and seven, there's a cluster of the teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. We have bypassed that because we preached the Sermon on the Mount a few years ago. So we're looking at, we, we, we bypassed, but, and then if you look, as we go through Matthew, you're going to see clusters of teaching cluster, and then encounters cluster. We'll see that. Chapters 8 and 9 are people's encounters with Jesus. But there, there are rules to the Sermon on the Mount. And the, the fourth thing a kingdom need, it needs is subjects who are under the, the authority of the king, and that's, and that's what we have in chapters 8 and 9. People who are under the authority of the one who reigns. Sometimes they like the king. Sometimes they don't like the king. Matthew shows us people who are impacted by King Jesus, by his words, by his actions, by his radical love for the unlovely, for them. His words of love, words of warning, words of action. Glance over those chapters, after 8 and 9. We see Jesus interacting with a leper, an outcast leper, a centurion who he healed his son half by long distance, uh, by Peter, his disciple's mother-in-law, uh, many who were oppressed with demon possession, a scribe, a religious man with a question, another disciple who comes with an excuse, two men with demons, a paralytic, Matthew and his friends, our pastors today, Ruler's daughter, who he raised from death. A woman with long-term sickness, who he healed by touching him. Two blind men. A mute man who is demon-possessed. And then he, he tops it off this section with a harvest that's plentiful. He tells the disciples, there's even more potential subjects out there. Go get them. Chapters 8 and 9. Who, the subjects of the kingdom. These chapters also focus on the authority of the king, but the, the authority and the subjects of the kingdom is what is what we have here. And, we, and as you notice, it's all kinds of people, isn't it? The subjects of King Jesus are all kinds of people. 
People are broken and beat up. Some are connected to royalty. Some are immoral. Some are respectable. Some are religious. Some are quite irreligious. All kinds of people are included. There's hope for us, right? Amen? There's hope for us. I know as I get older, I become more and more convinced that this process of of growth in Jesus, sanctification in Jesus, is an unending battle on earth. <laughs> we're, we're quite, we, we all have our own issues. We all are quite messed up. And we, and we pray and ask God to, 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 to help us to grow in areas of our life. And, and God is gracious to give us many times a, a measure of growth. But the longer I live, the more I realize there are certain things in my life that my wife's going to have to put up with. <laughs> my wife's going to have to, <laughs> maybe they're for her sanctification, not for mine. I don't know how it works. But there's certain things in our lives where we realize that, that, that we're just messed up and we need daily the cleansing that Jesus Christ brings. That frustration, it, it, can, be, it can lead to frustration, but, but also it leads us to realize that it really is about him. It really is only about him. And that, that's the source of our hope. We're just a collection of outsiders and outcasts. Paul in 1 Corinthians says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Simple question. Have you repented? Have you turned to God? What, what keeps you from repenting? There's only one thing that keeps us from repenting, that's pride. Pride. Trusting ourselves rather than realizing we can trust him. Have you, repent? Have you submitted to King Jesus? Let him be your king. He is king. Let him be your king and ruler in your life. The second thing in the passage is, is, is Matthew is transformed. He's like, like him. We, we are become saints. We become transformed by God's grace. Look at verse 9. The simple command is, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Probably there were some earlier contacts that Jesus had, but this is the, this is the definitive one. Where he lays down, he gets up from the tax booth and follows Jesus, never to return. Probably would let, they would probably not let him return. In verse 12, we also see Jesus mentioned that the sick folk need to be healed. The sick folk need to be, but you have to know that you're sick to get the healing. Matthew shows us that he'd come to recognize that indeed he was sick. He needed to be healed. He needed to follow Jesus, the, 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 the great physician who could solve the problem of his soul, the only one who could do that. By, by the way, Matthew, along with his outcast friends, were, would be ceremonially unclean in Jewish culture and Jewish fellowship. They were outcasts, and he was an outcast as one who was loyal to Rome. He was despised just as his friends were. Put yourself in, in the sandals of Matthew for just a second. There was a huge cost for him. He was already an outsider as a tax collector. He was a Jew. He was working for Romans, for the Romans. He, he was living large economically, yes, but add to this the idea of becoming a follower of Jesus, the radical rabbi from Nazareth, the one considered by the religious establishment to be a cult leader. Quite a cost. Quite a costly decision for him. And another cost was to be part of the inner team of Jesus 
He had to hang out with a dude named Simon the Zealot. Do you understand what's going on there? Matthew, pro-Roman. Simon, who wants to kill the Romans. You're on the same team. He needed to be transformed in order to be part of the team, to even walk with a guy named Simon and the rest every day. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God wants to transform us when he, bring, when he brings us to himself. There's a transformation that must take place in how we, in how we think, how we react, how we live, the, 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 the decisions we make, the values that we hold. Part of becoming, part, part of the cost of becoming a Christian is that you go through identity crisis. If you really decide that Jesus is first in your life, there's an identity crisis that begins to happen in your life and your heart. We, we become part of God's family, yes, but in the world, we, we become outsiders in a fresh way. That's not easy. Nobody wants to be an outsider. Nobody wants to be the weirdo in the room. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and that, there's a cost. Have you, have you counted that cost? Have you, have you counted the cost of there being a Simon Zealot in your life who maybe politically you disagree with? As Paul stated in Philippians 3, we need to count all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ. And, 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 that, and that includes this old sense of identity. We need to reshape our identity, let Christ reshape our identity. The, the thing that should govern our identity now is that we are subjects of the benevolent king, Jesus of Nazareth. And, that, that, and, and, that, and, and if you're like me, a sinner, that's going to mean some change. Application, particularly in the, in the current political realm. Uh, following Jesus as king should mean modifications, maybe even transformations of our political views. Sometimes I can be heard saying things that might appear confusing, maybe even contradictory. I don't know. I talk to some folk, and it, it's, it might seem that I'm quite conservative. I talk to, I, 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 you know, tr triumphing over the changes that we've seen in, in our in our land. And in other conversations, you might hear me say things that make me sound like I'm very anti-American, very radical, revolutionary maybe. I assure you that I don't think I'm confused. I don't, maybe you do think I am, but I don't think I am. It's just that, that I learned a long time ago that if I am a person who puts Christ first, who says, he is my king, who says, I must submit my heart and my mind and my will to him. Then my political views are on the table. I can't totally line up with the Democrats or the Republicans, which is the divide in our nation. See, I decided a long time ago to process my politics in a different way, as best I can, through a filter of God's word rather than my own cultural and own family background and preferences. Now, is complete objectivity possible? No. I understand that. We should understand that ourselves. But that should be our goal. I seek to step outside of my own context as much as I can and ask the question, what does the kingdom of God look like? What are the values of the kingdom? What does sacrifice and servanthood look like in the way I view education or crime or war or taxes, or poverty, or wealth. 
What promotes the welfare and flourishing of the church? What does human dignity look like for all people who are created in the image of God? Whether they're male or female, born or unborn, black or white, gay or straight, rich or poor, religious or secular. What does human dignity really look like? And what is, how does it impact the way we view politics? I believe if we as believers seek to be faithful to God's word, folk on both sides of the aisle will misunderstand us. I believe that. Now, I am not against political parties. They can be and have been very helpful, but we had better understand that Jesus is not on the side of either of the parties of our country. The kingdom of God is greater than all that. These parties are temporal. The kingdom of Jesus is eternal. I love what Tony Evans says. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. Now, by the way, we need to process these kind of matters in community, not alone. You, you hear me? Heart transformation takes place best in the context of community of faith, not privately. Well, the point is, is it, that, that, that's one area of transformation that we should be thinking about as our nation goes through the changes that it's going through. Following Jesus impacts the way we view these kind of matters. If it doesn't, then question, you have to ask yourself the question, am I truly a subject of the king? Or am I just following Jesus for convenience? Is he really my Lord? Is he really uh, the one who, who calls the shots in my life? Am I really looking at his word for what I believe and how I feel and the values that I have? In terms of identity, I, I, I hope that one of the things that, that governs my heart is that I'm a willing subject of King Jesus, being transformed day by day. The third thing in the passage, the last thing I want us to see in the passage is Matthew shares this passage with the world. Is, is, is he, sh- he gives these stories. We're, we're called to be, to be spokespeople, spokesmen, spokespeople sharing the grace of Jesus with others so that the kingdom might expand. Again, this is the only passage where he did this autobiographical here in the Gospel of Matthew. And and there he shows us how he met Jesus and then immediately he gets his friends to to, to have encounters with Jesus. There's something there for us. He's writing a book, sharing those stories, and he puts himself there only here. Earlier in Matthew, he he quoted Jesus' words to Peter and Andrew. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew 4, 19. He ends this section as I said earlier, with this, this reminder that there's other potential subjects of the king out there. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. We've got to go get, we gotta go get the, the harvest. Those laborers. But here, Matthew tells us the story of how he himself gathered his friends together so they might have an encounter with Jesus for themselves. This is the classic Matthew dinner party. The Matthew dinner party where friends come together, but the guest of honor is Jesus. Now, Jesus is no longer visible on earth, but we need to find creative ways of imitating the Matthew party, don't we? We need to 
find creative ways of sharing the gospel with people who, who don't know Christ yet. That Matthew strategy still works, you see. You know, dinner, dinner parties where there's a pleasant atmosphere and people can be challenged. Community groups can have gatherings. You can have game nights. You can go to O's games. You can go to concerts. You can go to summer festivals downtown. You can do those things and you can grab a friend who needs Jesus. We need to think more and more of, of that. We, whatever, you, whatever, you, whatever your hobbies are, think of interacting with people in our lives who need Jesus. The challenge of the text is to do these things that we do with kingdom eyes because there's a potential harvest. It means accepting people as they are, doesn't it? it uh, taking people and helping them to, to know God more fully, to understand, to believe, to experience the grace of God. A person's starting point, though, is not the issue. The issue is the potential and the trajectory. What direction are they heading? So the person might be a believer, might not be a believer yet, but that's okay. We need to meet people where they are and point them to Jesus. God does the work of converting. In fact, the verse we heard earlier in the scripture reading, 1 Peter 3, had that phrase, 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that, that's in you. Be prepared. Be, be, be available that people might hear from you the reason for the hope you have in Jesus Christ. And so in verses 12 to 13, we have a reminder that only the sick get healed, not the well. Only the sinners get saved, not those who feel they're not sinners. Only the unrighteous, not the, the righteous or the self-righteous. The grace of Jesus comes only to those who know they need God's help. In, the, in verse 13, Jesus cites an Old Testament quotation, which he does often in this book of Matthew. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. The whole verse is this. For I desire steadfast love and sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. And there's, there's Hebrew parallelism in that, one, that short verse from Hosea. Mercy, or steadfast love, and knowledge of God or, or, or is this relational connection that God has with us and he wants us to have with each other and with him. And then the, the, the sacrifice and burnt offering is the rituals of religion. And of course, the rituals of, of, of the Judaism and of the Christian faith were real. They were, they were ordained by God. But what, but, what, but, but what God is saying here, what Jesus is reminding them is, is that the ritual might have its place, sacrifice might have its place, but more important is the relational thing. He's saying that to the religious leaders who are questioning why you're hanging out with these kind of people. Jesus is saying the relationship of mercy towards people who are lost is more important than making sure that all the rules are followed correctly with the sacrifice and the burnt offerings and all that, which was so important to the Jews of that day. And he says that to us. He says that to us. God wants relationship, not just ritual. The gospel is more about, it's more than, than Jesus dying for our sins, important as that is. It's about Jesus dying for our sins so that we might have a relationship with God. Jesus is not abolishing the sacrificial system. In fact, the only way we can have that relationship with God is if he died for sins. He's not scrapping ritual, but saying mercy over ritual. As we share the gospel with people, we need to make sure that their relationship trumps religion and ritual. So we've learned about a man named Matthew. Have you seen yourself in his story? a man transformed by King Jesus. 
the man who came to Jesus because he finally became aware of his own sinfulness and his need for Jesus. In the office this week, we were happened to somehow get into swapping stories about things that happened in our past. And I shared a story that I guess they hadn't heard. Um, often I say, you know, think of the, the top ten days in your life, the, the top, you know, the, that are the most important days in your life. And there was a day, probably, I don't know what order it would be, but the first day of my life that, that's probably in the top ten, when I was about eight or nine years old, I was doing what I always did, you know, after school, you're bored, you go, with, sometimes you hang out with your friends, but I was by myself this time, and I was going into, going into the convenience store, like I did often, but, and I was also experiencing what, what we used to call five-finger discount, which is what I often did with my buddies. This time I was alone. This day I was alone, but what was memorable about that day is that that day I got caught. And I'll spare you all the details. Maybe some other time I'll share that. But, that, but, but basically, I had wise parents who made that the most memorable day of my life, a day where they applied the, the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge, plus other wise uh, uh, elements of discipline that I remember to this day. But tell you what, for the next several years, because I was, like, I, was like, I was the kid who got good grades, went to church, everybody thought I was a good kid. And, and, and until that day, that's what people thought of me. But now, I knew that that wasn't who I was to, before people. So for several years, I struggled to you know, go to church, hear, the, hear an altar call in the Baptist church, and, but the, it, it, struggling for several years until that one day, that one cold January morning when I gave my life and my heart to Christ. But it began with that first day of acknowledging that I was sick and needed the great physician. Where are you? Have you, or, or, or have you had that kind of a day that you thought was the worst day of your life? That now you can look back and say, that was the great day for me. Or, are you, or have, is it still a horrible day because you have not yet come to understand that God wants to use that to bring you to himself? Where are you in your life? Children, if you're young children here, maybe that's you. Maybe you're, like, maybe you're like I was. Everybody thinks you're a great kid. But you know, and God knows the truth. And my parents didn't know until that day when that security guard knocked on my door. My mom didn't know that that was my life. Humpty Dumpty needed a great miracle. All the king's horses, all the king's men were very willing to put him back together again, but they couldn't do it because that king wasn't good enough. That king wasn't strong enough. He wasn't powerful enough. Humpty stayed broken into pieces. He needed a king that was willing and able to put him back together. Humpty's problem was he needed a better king. That's what Matthew's telling us. <laughs> we need a better king. And guess what? The good news is we have a better king. Amen? Who can put us back together again. Because we're broken. I have a king who can put my life back together again. And he's doing that every day. His name is Jesus. He's the king. He's my king. Have you repented and turned to him? Is this king your king? Let's pray.
But Matthew is one of those disciples that we don't always hear a lot about. And I pray that we remember this about him, that he followed you. Count the cost and followed you. And you were sufficient in his life. Lord, may we do the same thing. May we have committed ourselves to you and continue following you and find you sufficient in our lives. Lord, I would pray for anyone here today who's in that process of thinking, of wondering. Yeah, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner, but you know, can Jesus really do it for me? But I, I pray they would, they would know that, that, that you are there. You're there to save. You're there to, to forgive. You're there to transform by your spirit. May we be a people who learn what it means to love you and follow you with all of our hearts. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us rise and uh, remind you that we have the, uh, the prayer intercessors. If you want to pray, be prayed for or pray about this or this message or other things that might be going on in your life. And let's receive now God's benediction. May the love of God our Father and the, and the grace of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, and the, the presence and the power of the Spirit of God be with you now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you.